Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Hallelujah. Amen to that, right? Man, that is some good stuff right there. It was such a privilege to get to interview Shelly and Lewis. And uh, the rest of the story um, is incredible. I mean, that was just a snippet of their lives. But the rest of the story is that not only did they get their children back, but they ended up going on and fostering three other, keeping them out of the foster kids uh, system. Um, and, uh, and God has just been blessing them for some time now in a very, very um, expansive way. Uh, God is a miraculous, wonder-working God, and He is involved at every aspect of our lives and in every area of our lives. Even when we were running from Him, He was still running toward us, and that is an example. And that's really one of the things that we're calling out and celebrating in this month of August, this month that we call The Stand. Um, and we're celebrating this on social media. I know maybe some of you were, uh, saw this week that the staff went up to Hatcher's Pass for our annual Stand Prayer um, uh, ATV adventure. Uh, it, we're Alaskans, right? We kind of mix ATVing in with praying to the Lord. It's an awesome thing. And, uh, and, and just an incredible time of worship up there. But we're, we're celebrating on all of our platforms, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Um, if you haven't looked at the app, look at the app. We have all kinds of information for you. We're going to continually direct you that way. And obviously, pictures on the way out of the foyer. All of these things are designed uh, in this month of August and something we do every single year. They're all designed to direct us to celebrate what it is that God is doing in allowing us and giving us permission and encouraging us to stand for our communities, to stand for our families, to stand for our neighbors, to stand for our spouses and for our children. And every year we do this, it's very, very personal for me and my family. And the reason it's such a personal part of our journey is because my mother um, was adopted. And I know that so much of my story and who I am can be painted backwards towards a man who stepped into her life at just the right moment and, um, and allowed her to have a godly father and a godly influence in her life. When my mom was three years old, she was stripped away from her father um, in Virginia and moved in the middle of the night to as far away as possible to California. And Yet in that story is now a story of incredible restoration. In fact, that's actually where we want to head this year, right? This year, our focus as we talk about the stand and what is it that we're standing for as a church, um, as individuals, we want to talk about that story of restoration, that God is a God who restores. And when it comes to restoration, um, here's what it means. It means to bring something back. That's what the word restore means. It means to bring something back. And we're in the book of Nehemiah because if you look throughout all the scriptures, there's probably no better place to talk about this idea of restore, bringing something back, than in this time period where Ezra, Nehemiah, and others were returning the Jews to their homelands. 
after they had experienced 70 years of exile under foreign invaders, uh, they had this opportunity, this rare opportunity to go back. And they were returning. And so God was in this process of restoration. And several years ago, I became very interested in the principles that govern bringing something back. The principles that govern restoration. Uh, And there's several, and we can learn some of them. But the one that kind of emerged last week in my own words, um, you were here last week perhaps, but in my own words, the the principle of restoration uh, that emerged was that restoration begins with a broken heart. That's the way I would put it. In chapter 1, restoration begins, begins when Nehemiah experiences intense grief. You remember that story. And when kind of grief that we don't really even understand in our Western mind, but it's a Middle Eastern grief. It's weeping, it's wailing, it's the kind of grief that, that, that takes you deep where thoughts go deep. And I would ask the question when it comes to grief, like, what good is grief? But the reality is, if we think about it, grief can often act as the catalyst towards restoration. Grief, intense sorrow, can act as a clarifying agent. i never forget my son Seth, who, when grandma, at 103 years old, decided that it was time to return to the Lord, uh, grandma was um, at the funeral home, she was, she was an open casket, and she was sitting there in, in the very front, and all of us were just sort of milling around, and, and then I wondered where, well, like many parents, I wondered, where are my children? I had Seth and Kate with me there at the time, but Seth was found up at the very front, looking into Grandma's casket, and he was just standing there, he was just staring To this day, I have no idea what it is that he was actually thinking about, but I know this, he was going deep. He was going beneath the surface of superficiality. It's like the words of of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He says, better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of laughter. Why? Because it's in the house of mourning that we go deep. And this is really what Nehemiah is experiencing. He experiences a broken heart over the ungodly way that the Jews are being treated, the shame that they're experiencing. And he really believes that God's reputation is on the line, and he believes that God is in the restoring process. And so Nehemiah does something that we often fail to understand or we miss in our journey with God. We often wait for God to call us into an experience. God, I'm sitting here on my couch. I'm watching TV. But I tell you what, if you would just show up and give me my next move, I'd do it. And the TV just kind of keeps playing, doesn't it? But Nehemiah takes a different tact. He actually invites God into his ministry. It's because he believes that he knows the heart of God. This isn't really the moment for him to discern what God's will is. It's the moment for him to pray according to God's will. What he knows to be true is that 70 years had been decreed. At the end of that seven years, God promised to restore the children. And Nehemiah says, God, let it be me. He 
because of his broken heart. His heart was breaking over the things that broke the heart of God, and as a result, the process of restoration commenced. So he gets permission from the king, and he heads to Jerusalem, which is where our story begins today, and it's where the real struggle for Nehemiah begins. It's in this restoration process itself. Restoration is a messy endeavor. I was restoring my childhood baby chair uh, several years ago. And, uh, and the reason I was restoring it was because I had broken it in a move. And so I felt obligated. It was a heirloom had been passed on to me for my baby years, and I wanted my kids to participate in the baby chair, which is totally not up to code, but it's super cool and wooden, right? And so I went through the process of finding somebody who could fashion this, this backboard and, and then soon realized that it was, it was a different kind of wood. We had to learn what kind of wood it was. And then, and then the wood was actually um, etched into holes that had been drilled out. And in order to get it in there, it wasn't just pinning it with some nails. I actually had to declutter some things. Like there was some rubble that needed to be removed. Things didn't just fit right. I had to customize and customize again. It's in that process that discouragement is a very real possibility. Nothing fits. There's rubble to remove. And, and it takes some time. It takes some effort. I mean, I had a busy schedule, and there were moments where I wondered if it was even worth it. That's sort of the feeling of restoration sometimes, whether we're talking about a wooden chair, whether we're talking about a life. And this is really where we find Nehemiah next in his story. This is where we pick up in chapter 2, verse 19. Nehemiah sent with a bunch of Jews down to Israel, and they begin to commence the build, and then this is what we run into. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arad, heard about it, they mocked and they ridiculed us. Why is it? What is it that you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? This was a legitimate question. They were essentially on loan from the king. They were governors of the area. Persia had allowed for that. And they wanted to know, do you have your paperwork in order? Because we're going to be inspecting it. But it really, it really wasn't that that troubled Nehemiah, or that should have troubled Nehemiah. His paperwork was in order the reality is, is that each one of these individuals represents a region. A sand ballot came from the north of Jerusalem. Tobiah came from the east of Jerusalem. And Geshem is actually an extra biblical text. So we know a lot about Geshem the Arab. He was a man's man, if you will. And he owned the southern region below Jerusalem. And if you know anything about geography, you know that it's the sea, the Mediterranean to the west. In other words, in other words, trouble is looming because Nehemiah and the people who had returned found themselves completely surrounded. There was no way of escape. This is where they were. This is the work. And we know that God says in these moments, I mean, um, don't look back once you put your hand to the plow. 
But really, in this moment, this must have been offsetting. This must have been, well, to put it mildly, just scary. This could have been something that would have made all of those who were around Nehemiah, his inner circle, shaken. And yet, Nehemiah has to face this very thing, right? This is the the new challenge. I mean, here he is on a mission from God, and the first thing he encounters is a brick wall. Which prompts me sort of to ask this question. Why is it that whenever we try to move forward in life, we encounter opposition? Have you noticed that? It's like whenever we try to make a move, whenever we do something good for ourselves, opposition seems to just come out of the woodwork. I mean, it doesn't matter if we're trying to improve something in a ministry at church or if we're trying to launch something brand new. It doesn't matter. Well, let's put it this way. Have you ever tried leading your family in devotions? How'd it go? Like any time we try to do the right thing, it's in that moment that opposition presents itself in a fresh way. It's like we're always swimming upstream. Have you ever felt that before? Nehemiah must have felt that way. I mean, here he was doing the right thing, and all it led to was a turf war. Now he's surrounded by his enemies, powerful enemies. And what will this do to the work of restoration? Well, first let's answer the question, why? Why is it that every time we try to step out in faith and do the right thing, we face opposition? We try to escape alcoholism only to be presented with another great opportunity that's hard to resist. Why? Well, the answer, I think, is simple, isn't it? In fact, maybe you know the answer. The answer is that God may have an agenda for us, but Satan does as well. God had a plan for Nehemiah, but Satan also had a plan for Nehemiah. And he will work against any work of restoration. And that's what Nehemiah now faces. So this is a decision moment, and Nehemiah responds. Listen to his response. It's telling. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. That rocks. I mean, isn't that awesome? We're totally surrounded. Nehemiah, what say you? Hold on, give me the mic. The God of heaven. This was a phrase that had been coined recently. In other words, you don't find it anywhere else except in this time period. It was a phrase that used to des- they used to describe a God who they believed was above all other gods. You see, the kings of that day believed they were, in fact, gods. You remember the story of old Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, the princes of Persia, these people believed that they were gods. They were part of the pantheon. They were part of what made life actually work. They were worshipped as gods. And in that culture and in that moment, the Jews coined a brand new way of describing the God that they served. He is the God of, oh yeah, heaven. He is over any earthly God. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, you may own all the land, but God owns heaven, which means he actually owns all the land. This was a code word. These were fighting words. Nehemiah reaches deep and he pulls out something fantastic. He says, listen, the God of heaven will give us success. 
we're in this work of restoration. God is in this thing. The God of heaven will give us success. He appeals to this God, and then he declares something important. He declares that the enemy has no legal authority in Jerusalem. Watch this. Verse 20 finishes, We his servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. You have no claim or historic right to it. This was legal jargon. This would have been good communication. If anybody wanted to know what Nehemiah actually believed, actually thought, this is what he actually thought. In other words, he wasn't about taking ground. He was about reclaiming old ground. That's restoration, isn't it? He wasn't taking grounds. He's saying, listen, you have no share here. You have no claim. There's no claim for your people on this land. In the ancient Near East, the God, the God of the people who gave the land is the God who owned the title deed to the land. If your God was bigger than the other gods, then you kicked the other nations out and now you owned the title deed or your God owned the title deed to that land. Throughout the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, is seen as owning the title deed to the land of Israel. And Nehemiah, as a matter of faith, is suggesting, listen, God gave us this land. His power is greater than the power of your gods whom you serve. This is his land, and I am reclaiming his land. God is in this. Now, it's at this point that we assume things should go smoothly. And they seem to. Chapter 3 describes them rebuilding the walls. Uh, they essentially stationed family units outside of a wall unit, and they just begin to build. And all over, they begin to close the gaps, and they begin to build the wall, and it begin to rise, and the nations could actually see it. And we expect things to continue in that direction. I mean, this was the test, right? Will he stand firm in this moment? Will he claim what he should be claiming and declare what he should be declaring? After all, he's anointed by God. But I want you to look at what happens next. After they build, listen to what they encounter again in chapter 4. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, and successfully so, he became angry and was greatly incensed. You know what incensed is. You've experienced it. It's when you stub your baby toe on a rock. And words come to your mind that are not godly, even though you are a godly man. That's incensed. It's that experience where you are so angry you can no longer hold it in and something vile comes out. He was incredibly angry. And so what he did was he ridiculed the Jews. He said this to them, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it, the walls, by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? 
Well, these were their fighting words. This was their response to God's work through Nehemiah and the people who were building. The response of those who surrounded was feeble, as one translation puts it. Or here, pathetic. Really what this was, was a war now of propaganda. It was a turf war, and propaganda was going to be one of the key tools leveraged against the Jews. Propaganda has a way of working itself into these situations, and it has a way of being very effective, because propaganda always has a little bit of truth sprinkled in. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that this was sort of a pathetic effort. I mean, we have uh, men, women, and children working on the wall. These aren't skilled laborers, and this was kind of a sorry band of individuals. It wasn't like the best of the best left Babylon and Persia and came back to the land. Actually, very few came back. It was a remnant. It was a remnant that God put in charge of restoration, but it didn't look like much. And people could understand why others would look at it and say, this is a feeble attempt. Maybe they're actually looking at Nehemiah and saying, Nehemiah, you yourself are feeble. Like we know what you weren't in your old days. We know that you were a cupbearer to the king, which maybe had some level of honor to it, certainly some level of trust, but the reality is you were just a common slave. You think you're a ruler now? Who do you think you are? You're feeble. We were born with nobility. We know you were born in captivity. I mean, who knows what they were saying, but they were saying the job was pathetic. There was truth, and this was personal. Even the stones seemed to mock them in this moment. The stones, is what the, this is what is said, can, can, these bring, can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the rubble? Which was a way in the Middle East of saying, burnt stones to build your wall? Well, that was a curse from the gods. You're building with something that has been cursed. Do you think you will actually be blessed in this work of restoration? These would have been powerful, sharp words. It's like that familiar voice that often cries out to you and to me that says simply this, you can't. You can't grow. You can't change. You can't take the material that you've been given and make anything beautiful from it. You can't. You just can't do it. You don't have what it takes. You're feeble. You're pathetic. And you know it. That voice echoes in our hearts from time to time, doesn't it? It comes louder and louder the closer in we get to this magnificent journey towards restoration. There's that moment where we have to claim the voices we will listen to or we will be overcome by the voices that want to take us down. And here in this moment, Nehemiah, this unguarded moment, Nehemiah may have assumed the materials we've been given can't possibly produce the change we want to affect. But here, instead, Nehemiah chooses to fight back. He's the hero in this moment. 
He fights back, and he fights back with his mightiest weapon, prayer. But it's the kind of prayer that he prays that makes you and me so uncomfortable. Listen to his prayer. Then I prayed, hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. And then he says this, may their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. This is an uncomfortable prayer. This is the prayer to God. God, judge my enemies. God, don't forgive. This is what the Bible calls an imprecatory prayer. David prays many such prayers in the Psalms called imprecatory Psalms. These are Psalms that God release evil or adversity on the enemy. What do we do with that theologically? Are those prayers that we get to pray? I'm sure you have prayed them. But are we allowed to? Are we allowed to pray prayers like that? I mean, this seems to fly in the face and contradict the very clear statements Jesus once made. Pray for those who persecute you. Or how about this? Love your enemies. I mean, are the imprecatory prayers just for ages past, or is this something that we can buy into today? Well, on a surface level reading, you might consider this a real contradiction. But underneath the surface, a closer look reveals something amazing, and it emerges in the following verse. He prays this prayer, and then listen to what he says as part of his closing. Do not ignore God their guilt. Do not blot out their sins. What's he saying? Well, he's not at all suggesting, because the context never mentions this, he's not at all suggesting send them to hell, God. Give them eternal damnation, because it's what they deserve. That's not at all on Nehemiah's mind. What is on his mind is something he himself had actually experienced at the hands of God. That Israel itself had, in fact, sinned. And when they sinned, God did what he said he would do, and he removed them from the place of blessing. That he didn't just ignore their guilt, and he didn't just blot out their sins, but like a loving Heavenly Father, he actually went after his own children, and he removed them. And at this point in time, 70 years later, Nehemiah had the wisdom to be able to look at this moment and realize that the reason he was the man he was today is because of the discipline and the judgment of God on his people. You see, they would have continued to sin, and they would have continued to lift themselves up in pride, and instead of the, 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 the justice of God being done and preserved on earth and the character of God emerging through his people, well, some other sense of justice and some other character would have emerged, and the testimony of who God was would have been depleted on the earth. But it was through judgment, it was through God taking their sins seriously, something beautiful had emerged 70 years later. And in a sense, Nehemiah is actually saying, I want you to treat them like you treated us, your people. He continues, he says, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. He's not actually saying, come to my defense. He's saying, God, come to your defense. They have provoked you. 
You have made specific promises and they have not listened. They haven't honored you. They haven't seen your glory and honored you. Instead, they've done the opposite, just like we did. This was intensely personal for Nehemiah. I marvel at the, the level of person here. That, that this is so close. That Look at how he's praying. He's saying, God, they have provoked you in front of us. <laughs> it's as if Nehemiah believes that he understands once again what the heart of God is. That because of the sin of the surrounding nations, God's heart was once again breaking. I mean, God is thinking, don't they know who they're dealing with? Don't they know that if they bless my people, I will bless them? Don't they see what's on the other side? Why can't they join? Something amazing can take place. Are they really happy with where they're at in their lives? I want to give them something better through my people. See, a promise had gone out years before to Abraham, the patriarch, that whoever blessed his sons, his children, would be blessed. You see, Nehemiah is actually then praying according to the will of God in this imprecatory prayer. He's actually saying, I want you to treat them like you would treat me. And I recognize that this breaks your heart, and I want to enter into the same thoughts, the same attitudes, and the same prayers that you have, because you only want what is good for them. And I know your work, and I know how you want to restore. In a sense, Nehemiah is here praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a righteous prayer, and it's a prayer we have permission to pray. Now, when we pray, we expect things to change. But I want you to notice what happens when Nehemiah prays. I mean, here it is again. His go-to is prayer. He is a spiritual giant. What happens as a result of his tremendous prayer? Praying according to the will of God. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had the will to keep working. The people got excited, and God was honored, and good things took place. They began to continue to build. But that's not the whole of the story. Continue on, it says, When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard, wait a minute, we like expanded the pool here. We have even more enemies than when we began. But God, I prayed. God, I asked for deliverance. God, I asked for healing. God, I said, I want to grow. Okay. Here's what it looks like. It looks like increased opposition sometimes. When they heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing, that the gaps were being closed, they became, they've been angry, they've been incensed. Now they're furious. We're running out of words. They're furious. They're ticked. It continues on. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. After much prayer, there was some positive, but then ultimately there's this stark negative, right? Opposition increased. It got harder. The question is why? I want you to remember this. What Satan cannot accomplish by deceit, 
he will seek to accomplish by force. What Satan cannot accomplish by deceit, he can't deceive you, you know too much, you believe too much, he will try to accomplish by force. Be ready. After all, he's called the roaring lion in the scriptures, seeking whom he may devour. We should expect this, really, those of us who are called by the name Christian, right? I mean, we should expect to be treated exactly how Jesus was treated. And we know how Jesus was treated when he launched into this restoration process. In fact, listen to this, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the expectation of every believer that is moving in the right direction. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a given. It's the way it is. If you're moving in the right direction. It doesn't mean that the wall doesn't get built. It doesn't mean restoration doesn't take place. It just means opposition is in your future. So be ready. Just like when you prepare for a game, you know that there is an opponent. And you prepare for that opponent, and you're okay with that because victory awaits. The same is true for the Christian moving through life and embarking on this great work of restoration. That we move there anyway, but we're ready for what comes next. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But I want you to notice there's something else far more discouraging than a little opposition in the text here. It's the work of restoration itself. Listen to this, verse 10 of chapter 4. In Judah it was said, the strength of the laborer fails. The strength of the laborer fails since there is so much, say it with me, rubble. Rubble is these broken fragments of rock and dust. They just sort of pack in tight together. If you ever tried to take a spade and just break up a bunch of hard pack, you realize that, man, you were going for the big rock and all you get is another pebble. <laughs> you get a little bit more dust. It just takes forever. It's discouraging, which leads me to this principle. Restoration means removing the rubbish. If we're going to actually participate in this story of restoration, we're going to have to prepare ourselves to remove the things that need to be removed, maybe in our own selves or maybe as we're doing the work of restoration for somebody else. It doesn't matter what you're restoring, rubbish is going to be a part of it. Whether it's a wall, whether it's a dream or a life, and it's always difficult. But I believe Nehemiah's rubbish was more emotional than it was physical. Every time he went to dig into that wall, you know what he was reminded of? Israel's sinful past. He was reminded of the past. The traps of past Failures can undermine the good work of restoration. I remember a man who was in Bible college with me, and he had a past. The past was so defeating that one day he came to me and he said, I know this girl, this godly woman, 
is in love with me and she wants to marry me and she's interested in me, but Jonathan, I cannot overcome my past. She deserves more. And he missed out on a future blessing because he couldn't escape the rubble of his past. And yet here, this is Nehemiah's cross to bear. I mean, just look everywhere, there's rubble, and yet Nehemiah has to step into that rubble every single day, and he has to pick up the pieces and put charred blocks, charred remains, old materials together to, to build this wall, to be a part of this process of restoration, and he does it. But it's here, I think, Satan's threefold attack is complete. Personal weakness, you're feeble. Enemies that surround and past failures. Together they can cripple any good endeavor. In response to this threat, Nehemiah does three things. He prays, he builds, but then in verse 14, listen to how our story ends. He does something incredible. After I made an inspection, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. I want you to remember, this is an awesome passage. The idea of remembering here is to actually prophesy. It's to speak out publicly. The idea here is that together, collectively, I want you all to remember together. I want you to speak out the great things that God has done. Why? Well, because he is awe-inspiring. Think of that thing that is most awe-inspiring. Maybe it's the mountains. Maybe it's a grizzly bear. And the idea here in the original language is that when you encounter that thing that inspires awe, you're essentially passive in the process. When you encounter it, the thing actually does nothing, and you do nothing, but when you encounter it, its mere size, its immensity, its greatness absolutely overwhelms you, and the response, the only response, the only thought, the only thing that comes to your mind is awesome. That's God. So I want you to remember that. I want you to remember the presence of the Lord. That he has always been with you. I want you to remember that God is in this. That this restoration idea wasn't your idea. This was God's idea. We're not fighting this war, Nehemiah says. God is fighting this war. We're simply joining God in the battle. Here we are. This is our moment. This is our time. Do you understand that this is our God? He is the ultimate game changer, the miracle worker. He is the almighty God, remember, is in the imperative. It is a command. Remember. This was a breakthrough moment. This declaration meant comfort to Israel, but it also surfaces a warning, doesn't it? Restoration is a dangerous business. That's what Nehemiah would say. But it's far, and don't miss this, it is far more dangerous to challenge the work of God. Because he is so awesome, because he is so powerful, and because this was his land, because this is his work. But Nehemiah is saying, you guys better watch out. God has his eye on us. 
We could go into the Old Testament, we could tell stories about how the awesome power of God demonstrates the glory of God. But there's something else here I want to draw your attention to as well. It's a promise that we're not alone. Remember, the awe-inspiring Lord. He's here. He's in your life. And the process of restoration may be arduous, and it may be difficult, and it may be three steps forward and two steps back, but you are never and have never been alone in the process. And it doesn't matter what power of hell comes at you or what voice comes at you in the dark. It doesn't matter what past you have experienced. The reality is, is in the moment when you look up, you will see an awe-inspiring picture of God and His power can be, should be, and will be on display in your life because He has destined you to be fully restored someday. That's where He's moving you toward. You have power to pray in that moment. You have power to move in that moment and to step into all that God has for you. Nehemiah does just that, which leads me to this final question. If God is that big, if he is so amazing, and if the work of restoration is that difficult and so discouraging, we need to be asking this question at every step in the journey. How big is our God? Let me pray for you. Lord, as we worship, I just ask that you would impress us once again about your greatness. We pause right here on this verse. You are the awe-inspiring Lord. And the work that you're doing among us is your work. We ask, Lord, that you would increase that work in our lives and we give you full reign and permission in our lives as a church, as individuals, and inspire us as we encounter you to new places in our community. You are that great, and we want to serve you, God. So help us on in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.